Welcome to Forecast, the foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I am Josh Seligman, the editor of Foreshadow, an online literary magazine featuring work that points to the kingdom of God. With me today is Carl Windrill, a poet and a writing teacher. He recently published a book of poems called The Gospel According to Mary. Although he and his wife are usually based in Southern California, they're currently serving as missionaries in Ukraine, and that's where he's based right now as we're speaking. Today, I'd like to speak with Carl about his new book. He'll read some of his poetry to us, and we'll have the chance to explore the poems and the stories behind them. We'll also discuss the connection between his faith and writing. So Carl, it's really great to have you here on Forecast. Welcome. Oh, Josh, thanks so much for letting me be a part of this and wanting me to be a part of this. Um, I've been checking out Forecast since you first began it a few months ago, and I'm very pleased to now be a part of it. Uh, I especially like the, the, the name Forecast. It has so many layers of um, meaning and application. So I think there's a, a real spark of genius and creativity behind that itself. So thanks again for letting me be a part of it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Carl. And I'm glad you appreciate the name. It, it's uh, like your poetry. It's a play on words. And yes. there's a lot of conne making connections between different ideas. So I, I and, and so I look forward to speaking about that in, in your poetry as well today. But thank you. So Good. to introduce yourself to our listeners, um, could you tell us uh, briefly about yourself and especially uh, describing the threads of faith and writing in your life? Okay, uh, I'll start with a little brief uh, journey of my life without going into too many details, but I think part of what I experienced as a kid growing up, especially my church experiences, has uh, hugely informed and uh, prepared me, you know, for what, what I've done with my, my writing. Uh, I grew up in Florida. I was uh, raised primarily by a single mom. My mom was a waitress, and she raised me and my two younger sisters uh, largely on her own. Uh, I went to college actually on a basketball scholarship. And that was my ticket out. That gave me a chance to uh, have my education paid for. And from there, I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. And from thence, I went to uh, New York University, where I picked up a PhD in creative writing. And uh, that's what I really learned, as I, as I like to say, they taught me how to write everything from a grocery list to a dissertation. And I know some people are like, well, how can getting a doctorate help you write a grocery list? Uh, I've talked about it in some of my classes about, you know, it's all about organizing. It's about recognizing systems and patterns. And uh, I know you do this even when you're preparing this cast. You know, you look for a, a flow to it, you know. Hmm. And so I would, I would amaze myself when I would look at my grocery list and I'd be like, this isn't a poem, but there's a real form and structure, structure here, you know. Interesting. Uh, so along the way, I taught in a college in Boston for a bunch of years, and then I went to San Diego and taught uh, at Point Loma Nazarene University. And uh, along the way, I spent uh, time teaching in Japan. I spent a year teaching in Japan on a college, in a college there. I've been to the, I was a, a appointed a visiting scholar to China for two summers, along with my wife, who's the other NYU PhD in the family. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, semester seed, China, Japan, 
And then for a number of uh, fall semesters, while we were in San Diego, we took students to London for a fall semester there. So I'm very used and accustomed to uh, being immersed in other cultures and thinking about language. And uh, so uh, it's, for me, I'm not surprised. Some, some of my friends and family are, are that I'm now in Ukraine. I'm here on a two-year assignment. We may extend longer. And prior to that, we were in, uh, in uh, Croatia for, 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 for two years. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that no matter where I go, I write. I write every day, uh, no days off. Uh, I'm blessed to be able to do that. Um, my assignment here is as a missionary educator, but everybody knows when I took the assignment, I'm 50% missionary educator, but I'm also a 50% writer. So what I do, as I've been doing for the last 25, 30 years, the first fruits of my day go to my writing. And as you know, and as I'll continue to explain here, there's no conflict in my writing between my faith and my art. You know, I feel very blessed, you know, like, Michelangelo, well, it's kind of dropping a name, but anyway, we know him as, as a sculptor that most of what infused his art was his faith. I mean, everybody knows the David, you know, there in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. I mean, what a marvelous piece of sculpture, but it's also an impressive piece of faith at work. And so uh, for me, that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, is that the first few hours of my day, uh, even when I was a faculty member, I would try to get after chapel classes or around lunchtime classes so I could stay home and spend the first three or four days, three or four hours of the day working on, on, my, on my poetry. <clears throat> um, probably what will help to introduce the gospel according to Mary is to reflect the uh, influence that my grandmothers had on me. I was christened in the Polish National Trinity Catholic Church by my Polish grandmother. And, not, and at about the same time, not too long after that, my Protestant grandmother had me baptized in the Church of the Nazarene. And so from the time I was a baby until probably I was 13 or 14 years old, I was alternately carried one Sunday to Mass, and the next Sunday I would be in a Protestant worship service. So for me, I feel like I grew up with the best of both traditions. And so when people are surprised or amazed or if they're kind of curious about why I'm writing about Mary, the mother of Jesus, I tell them that I, I, I grew up in the tradition of both the Catholics and the Protestants. And I was raised primarily in the company of women. My Polish grandmother uh, was unmarried most of her life when, uh, when I was growing up under her influence. My mother raised me. Uh, my, my strong paternal influence was my, paternal, my maternal grandfather, uh, my, mom's, my mom's father. So along the way, I became very sensitive and in tune with what was going on in women's lives. And, and so for me, it's easy to cast Mary as the narrative persona in the gospel according to Mary. She is the voice in the gospel according to Mary. So that's been my impetus to be sensitive to that leading, to that understanding. Um, and a little more about the gospel according to Mary is that there are 62 poems in the book. 36 of them have already been published. A half a dozen of them have been already set to music in the classical tradition. Uh, several of them have been anthologized. Uh, and a new anthology is coming out with, a, with, I think, five or six of the poems in them. So these are all poems that have been pretty well vetted. You know, they've, they've been uh, scrutinized by a number of people. And so that's why I feel very, very comfortable with what I'm doing. But I know it's kind of cheeky, Josh, 
you know, for me to one, call the book, the gospel according to Mary. Mm. And then also to say, well, Mary's going to tell the story here mm. because Mary really doesn't have that much of a voice in the new Testament. I mean, we see her at separate important occasions, but what I've tried to do is give her the leeway, the latitude to tell the whole story from her perspective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the major gospel writers. They're all men. Um, they didn't have a lot of personal contact with Jesus, but no one can deny that Mary certainly did. So in her version of the gospel, she starts with the death of Jesus. And as we know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all start with the birth of Jesus. And then they move forward chronologically in their narrative. John goes way back. He starts with the actual creation and then introduces Jesus as the word who was there in the beginning. And so for me, by putting the crucifixion, which is where the, where the gospel according to Mary starts, it starts with the crucifixion. Jesus is on the, on the cross. In the very first uh, poem, Agni Dei, I compare Abraham and Isaac and that potential sacrifice with Jesus and God and that sacrifice that was carried out. For, for me and Mary's mind, that's the worst day of her son's life. That's the worst day of her son's life, of her life as well, for her son. So instead of celebrating his birth, she wants to do the death thing and get it over with. And so the first few poems are to deal with the, with the crucifixion, the deposition, taking Jesus off the cross, putting him in the tomb. Uh, then we have the resurrection, moving into the uh, ascension. And it's at that point that the narrative stops when Jesus goes to heaven. And then she goes backward in time. That's when she juxtaposes the ascension with the Annunciation. That's when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's when they start. Well, she decides to start in the middle of the book. And then from that point, she moves forward through Jesus' growth and his public ministry. And in the very last poem, I guess I should say this is a spoiler alert, okay? The very last poem in the book is called uh, is the Regulus Pacus. It means the Prince of Peace. It's Latin for that. And in that poem, Mary recounts how that Jesus is in the garden and he allows Judas to kiss his cheek. For her, that's the high point of her son's life. She starts with the lowest point, the crucifixion. For her, the highest point is when Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Because when Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, he's turned the other cheek so he can do that. That sets in motion, the betrayal sets in motion that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer a terrible, horrible death on the cross. And for her, she understands that because his, not my will, but thy be done, Matthew 26, 39, is the echo of Luke 138. Mm -hmm. That's when she says, behold the handmaid of the Lord, may it be done unto me according to thy will. So that, that makes her proud because she's, hearing the echo of her saying to God, whatever you would like to do, that's what I will do for you. Yeah, and as I read your poems, I, I see that you, you really have an eye for making those connections. Um, in that case, scriptural connections, but also connecting with other um, pieces of literature. Um, and, and I also imagine maybe parts of your own life, maybe a, a question that, that rose in my, and, and we'll, we'll get to, your, your poems next, but if I can add a question that, that was sure. kind of impromptu. Um, yes. a, as you were uh, writing these poems um, from the perspective of the Virgin Mary or Mary, um, where, where do you draw upon, um, the, um, what do you draw upon to, um, 
kind of help you to empathize and, and to see through her eyes? Uh, where, where are those sources that you draw upon for that? Well, obviously the uh, early formative years of being in church, hearing the stories, being surrounded by other people who, uh, good, bad, or otherwise, are interested in immersing themselves in the stories that come out of the Bible. Uh, for me, I feel like I'm the hybrid person. I'm the, the part Catholic, part Protestant. Mark Twain, uh, one of his favorite characters was called, his kind of character was the intruding stranger. In other words, he liked to bring a character into a community who was an outsider. Because the outsider, like in The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg, and that's really what Huck's role is in the Huckleberry Finn. As he goes down the river, he's the outsider who comes into a village, and what he sees as an outsider is things that they can't see because they're too you know, caught up in what their little world is. So for me, as a kid growing up, I would go to a Catholic church on, for Mass on one Sunday and see how they did it. Then I would go to a Protestant worship service the next Sunday and see how they did it. And I was doing, constantly doing this comparing and contrasting. But basically what I understood was that there was a fascination for the mysteries and the miracles of the Bible stories. Um, what really infuses my writing is that every day in my writing, I spend time with a variety of texts. Um, it's, a, it's a process that I started in graduate school. I, I didn't want to sit down and read three hours of Henry James. So what I would do is I'd read 15 minutes of Henry James, and then read 15 minutes of Ernest Hemingway. And I would pick and choose and go back and forth and keep my mind alert. So basically, and this might be a time to help you answer, answer that question, uh, my mind is open. I always keep it open when I'm doing my writing in the morning. And so what I have is I have right here, I have uh, six or seven texts. And so after I get up, this morning I woke up at 5.45, came out of bed about 6, ate a light breakfast, and came into my writing space here, which is where I am right now. And I have right before me seven different texts. And I also infuse it with scripture memorization. I review scripture in my head. I have a Catholic prayer books I, I'm, I'm in and out of. But what I specifically do, for example, I have a, I, I read a paragraph or two or three, like one of the books is called Mary the Mother of Jesus by Franz William. And it, it's his way of giving more information about Mary growing up. The next book is The Story of a Soul by St. Teresa. And I read a page or a few paragraphs of that. When I move on, I always have a book of poetry. I have a, a book by uh, uh, Susan Byler Shepherd that I've been reading called Doe. But a good friend of mine, a new friend of mine, uh, Rabbi Yahiel Pokapu, you know, he sent me a manuscript that is being published in the fall. Mm. Uh, and so it's about Jewish Holocaust poems. And so I'm actually reading one. I read wow. one of those and I move on. I'm doing Rundle Bear, The Distant Land. I'm doing a book that a friend of mine gave me, Lord of the World, Robert Hugh Benson. I read a paragraph or two or three. Mm. And I rotate around back and forth. And my antennae are always up. So here I am, I'm immersing myself in a very variety of texts and dialogues. I've got paper in front of me. And when I feel like I'm getting inspired by something, I'll make a note and I maybe start a poem or I just keep moving on. And eventually uh, I get uh, an idea from the reservoir that's inside of me. I will do this until about noon and uh, working on poetry. Uh, I don't have a set agenda for I have to start three poems. Some mornings I start three or four. Some mornings I start one. Today I've only done one so far. Uh, and then I also spend some time revising, rereading, doing little, I call them pep rallies. I read stuff that I've written before to, to get me infused so that I'll know, oh, I did that before. I can do that again. You know? mm. So that, this may be a roundabout answer to your question, but uh, 
I'll, I'll talk a little more about this later on. I feel like that if you're a writer, you're always at work. Mm. Even when I'm done writing at noon, I've got my antennae up for a film that I see or a conversation or I'm reading something else. And I'll talk a little more about that, that later. That okay. I, I don't just write from eight to four and then knock off. Uh, my subconscious kicks in and when I'm yeah. writing, when I'm sitting down with my wife and I get the thousand yard stare in my eyes and she's like, <laughs> okay, I know where he's at right now. She doesn't okay. bother me. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it sounds like you're making these connections with all parts of your life and all parts of your reading and you're integrating your, your life experience with your faith, with what you're reading and history. And so going now into um, your, the, one of your poems, um, uh, I believe if I'm correct, an immaculate, con- uh, an immaculate conception was, is the first, was the first of the uh, Mary poems that you wrote. Is that right? Yes. And yes, so, I wrote it. I'm sorry. Uh, no, well, I, I wrote yeah, it go ahead. in graduate school when I was at the University of Chicago. So that's, that's, that's the first Mary poem that I remember writing. And at the time, I didn't say, oh, I want to write a poem about Mary. I wrote this poem. Yes. So, uh, so could, you, could you read that poem for us and maybe sure. tell us, yeah, just tell us about what, uh, what inspired that. And, and that's because it seemed to have kicked off this this yes. kind of lifetime of writing poems about the yes. Virgin Mary. So it's a good yeah, it place kind to of start. A, yeah, it was kind of a bell ringer for me. And as you know, from the book, it's the, like the preface. It's the poem before the crucifixion. It's a little preface here. And so it is called An Immaculate Conception. In the basement of the broad view of all places, I go to sit and do my laundry and to commune with my soul. The washers whirl and swish the soiled clothes while I sit, sensing the cleansing. Rinsing to a frenetic spin-stop, they tumble to an arid staleness. Finally, morosely, I await to wear the soilless linen in an unclean world. That's not my voice. I mean, you heard my voice, but I'm reading the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is her. And for a number of readers, this is the poem that catches their eye. They're like, wait a minute, Mary never did her laundry in a laundry room. What is this all about? But people who are aware of Mary, the mother of Jesus and the apparitions over the years when she has appeared, she is a very here and now woman in in our world. She is the emissary, the ambassador. So for me to put Mary in a laundry room in the basement of a building, uh, for Catholics, they're like, they're okay with that. They understand that. And to be honest, that was where I got the idea for writing the poem. I was in, the, I was in graduate school, I, the dormitory, the graduate school dormitory, the residence that I lived in was called The Broadview. Uh, I was sitting there doing my laundry and almost... All of this poem came in one sitting. They don't all happen like that, but this is one of the ones that did. And I just, I still got the original kind of notepad where I was scribbling on here. And it's probably 95% there as it is now. Um, For me, this is an interesting poem to introduce how and what I write with regard to form and structure. Uh, People who write free verse poetry like I do, some people look at them askance and say, hey, that's just, you know, waddling on and on about an idea. There's no structure, but actually there's the same structure for this poem as there is for the five paragraph freshman composition essay that you probably wrote when you were a first year student. I used to teach that class every year 
two and three and four sections of the year. So really what this poem, and I'll do a quick, you know, breakdown of it here. Mm-hmm. It's only 14 lines. Uh, unfortunately, we can't see it. You'll have to trust me on this. It's only 14 lines. It's made up of five stanzas. First stanza has three lines. The next stanza has one line. The middle stanza has four lines and then three more lines. And then the last stanza is three lines. So it's basically broken up into five stanzas. The five paragraph essay okay. in the freshman composition has five paragraphs. The first paragraph's function is the introduction. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the introduction, you want to have the thesis statement. And then paragraphs two, three, and four are supposed to give examples of the introduction and the thesis statement. And then the last paragraph is supposed to be the conclusion. When I've done this with classes before, when they look at me, they look at me somewhat like, seriously? That's how you write a poem? Now, when I wrote it, I wasn't thinking that. Okay. But one of the things that we all know in art, and when I was at NYU working on a PhD, is that artists immerse, to use your word, I really like that word choice, you immerse yourself in your art form so that you know how to draw a landscape or a a, a vase of flowers or fruit in a bowl. You don't have to start over from scratch. Uh, When Picasso would sit down to do a painting or do a sketch, he didn't have to just go back and revisit line and color and juxtaposition of image and whatever. He just sat down and did it. I've tried to explain that to people. That's basically what, what I do. I don't sit down and go, okay, this is the form, this is the structure. I discover it usually later. A very famous Robert Foss quote is, he said, for me, the initial delight in completing a poem is realizing I knew something that I didn't know that I knew before I wrote the poem. Mm-hmm. And that's why I can testify to that. And not only with knowledge and info, it's also about the... Uh, form and structure. The poem, as we see it here, came without a title. I had no title. And eventually I thought, because it's just, it's a laundromat poem is basically what it is. But what I realized later on, that this was like the conception, it's an immaculate conception. And I put first the immaculate conception, but then that was Jesus. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not comfortable with that. And so then I put, and you change the article to an indefinite article and realize that makes it more flexible because in essence here, this is the story of how Mary was immaculately conceived. This is her reflecting. Uh, those of us, this is my, my art and faith here. Those of us who, who know Psalm 134, when David says, you know, before you covered me in my mother's womb, and in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah says, you know, uh, when you made me in, the, in the, my mother's belly, you knew me before you did that. And so for me, this is this otherworldly experience of Mary reflecting on how she was embodied. She was Interesting. Made, made in this washing machine image. You know, when you look at a washing machine, I always think the washing machine was the front loader. So it's got the water and it's got the, the clothes and everything. And it's dark and it's warm and everything's being made clean. So really what the stream of consciousness here is revealing, you know, the washing machine makes for a wonderful wonderful metaphor for, yes. for starting new life. And then the conclusion is that she says that she understands that there's something foreboding here. She says morosely, but I'm awaiting to wear linen that will never be soiled. She is one person and her son who is born without sin, without original sin. So that her, this, this clothing, this linen cannot be soiled, but yet she has to wear it in an unclean world. And that's what her son's, her son's uh, mission is, is going, going to be as well. Yeah, I, I just if I can just say I, I think that connection sure. between the the soilless linen and an unclean world, there's a lot of um, connections there, and and just how sh- um, 
how the Virgin Mary lives a life of purity in the world. Um, yes. That's, and, and when, I, when I read this, I didn't realize all of that background, but I just imagined um, that she, she's, she has these new clothes that she's going out into the world, out of, out of the laundromat, and going out into the, onto the streets, into the world, and wearing yes. new clothes. And, and, and I thought that's a really um, vivid image of, um, of when we go out um, with clothes with God's grace, not something that we earn ourselves, but going out into the world um, and, and kind of shining with, with the light and love of God in us um, for, for anyone who, who, who has experienced and, and um, connected with God. And, and that line, to commune with my soul also um, suggests that it's it's the relationship between us or between the Virgin Mary and God. It's a com- communion with that holiness yes. and purity that, uh, that, that that relationship transforms us in, as we go out into the world. So, um, so yeah, um, just some some of my thoughts on what you're saying in relation to the poem. Josh, you just might be my ideal reader. <laughs> you have picked up, I love your word choices. This is about holiness and about purity. And that's why the one stanza in the poem only has one line. And that's the second one, to commune with my soul. That is the thesis statement. First stanza is the introduction, as we know, as I used to teach the students. At the end of your introductory paragraph, you put the thesis statement. So that's, you know, the key there, that that's what, this, that's what elevates this above just a laundromat experience. How many people go down there to commune with their soul? They go there to their laundry. But for her, she's transcending that experience. Uh, I can't give all the background to make the story work. I, I'm able to do that because of you. I just I have to write the poem and, and let it you know, resonate as it does with the reader. And of course, you bring lots of information to make this happen. When, when I usually talk about this poem and uh, people are like, wow, I didn't see the structure there. I didn't realize that that really makes it work. And uh, it gives me a chance to quote another famous writer another dead writer, Ovid, he's the one who said, the art is to hide the art. In other words, what you do is you make, whether it's a painting or a sculpture, you know, or telling a story, is that you do it in such a way that the way that you are have put it together is hidden because the art is not to call attention to itself, which is kind of a problem that I think some 19th, 20th century, not 21st century artists are all about. It's a kind of look at me thing here. You know, Ovid was the guy, you know, you know, in, in Latin, it's ars est solare artem. It's, it's very simple. It's just the art is to hide the art. Make it simple. Make it not distract the reader from how it's put, put together. So, yeah, that uh, was a good response, Josh. Way to go. Thank you. Uh, and uh, before we go on to your next poem, I just wanted to ask sure. as well on that, on that line of communion with the soul is, I was just wondering, is writing a way for you to commune with your soul? And if so, how? You are absolutely spot on to coin a phrase here, you know. Uh, I feel like I am totally blessed that every morning I get to figure out a way to spend time with both my, my devotion, doing my scripture reading, and my avocation, which is to write. Um, it's a good thing that... Uh, as I've been known to say in the classroom, poetry doesn't pay the postage, but you don't write poetry for the money. You write it because you can't not write it. So for me, I am blessed because at the same time in the morning, you know, I'm having a spiritual experience as well as an aesthetic experience. So it's a way for me to explore what I think. And as a, 
as I mentioned with Frost, for me, the initial light sometimes too is to see these connections that I didn't know about. But it's about, you know, it's about like standing in church with your hands raised, palm up. You know, what is it you want to give to me today? I'll take it. You know, I'll, I'm just going to be an open, an open vessel, vessel for you here. So the interesting thing also about this poem is about a year later, I sent it out for publication. And the first place I sent it to was the International Poetry Review. And they took this poem and another poem. So in fact, we're really happy that it gave me $5 or whatever, you know. When I got that, I was like, man, this poetry gig, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good deal, man. It's just easy. You just send them up. It's not always the case. Trust me, there have been a lot of times when I didn't get $5. I didn't get anything back, you know. Uh, but again, we don't do it for the, for the money. I'm, when I get up in the morning, I don't think, wow, I'm going to write a poem and someone's going to give me $250. No, I'm going to write a poem and I'm going to be in a place where I can feel inspired. And, and again, the Latin for that is inspirare, inspirare, which means to breathe in. And I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit, you know, or someone to breathe into me some ideas that I can write about. So I am blessed in that regard, yes. Thank you. And uh, so could we go to your, your, your next poem yeah. um, uh, and uh, maybe read that for us as well and, and tell sure. us as, again the story behind that poem? I'll be delighted to. Thank you. Yes. Um, this one is titled Kneeling at the Manger. And the title is also the first line of the poem. And for those in the future who might like to have access to this poem, uh, you don't have to buy the book. I'd be, delight be delighted if you wanted to. But if you are uh, connected online, if you would just Google my name, Carl Winderl, and then the title of the poem, Kneeling at the Manger, Carl Winderl, Kneeling at the manger and click on that and what you'll come up with is the poem itself online it was published in the christian century on december 13th 2018 so for those of you who want to put me on pause or put josh and me on pause and go do that you can read along while i read this poem it's a little bit longer the previous one was 14 lines this one is 26 lines uh, i like for my poems to be on one page or less that does two things that gives me a, a framework for how to operate. I want to see my whole poem in one, in one, one viewing. And it also increases my chance for it getting published. Uh, editors, publishers like to put it on one page. They don't like to have to kick it over. Although online, you can make it longer. So uh, if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and read the poem. And if you're not, I'm reading it anyway. Again, this is Mary's voice. You're hearing me, but she's the narrative persona here. Kneeling at the manger. Staffs at their sides, hushed, mouths agape, reeking not of frankincense and myrrh, but of linseed oil, sulfur, pitch, and tar. These rough men stare, stunned by my son's birth, shocked and amazed gazing at him. Their faces, though, I recognize. They're the providers of the Paschal lambs, at Passover for the temple. They breed and they take from the ewes their firstborns to bleed and suffer, sacrificed to atone for Israel's sin. But when their shepherd eyes meet mine, I see on their adoring faces a, a glimpse of mute surprise, some wonder in an eyebrow's rise, disbelief while something in their furtive sidelong glances causes me 
to further ponder more for they have been trained to know a sacrificial lamb when they see one. I've had a number of responses from people in person when I've read this and when I've sent it around uh, to friends to bombard, carpet bomb my friends. Whoa, look at the new poem that I've had published online. Uh, who tell me, I had one, one, one friend say, when, when I heard you read that last line, I got chills up and down my back. And another person who read this online emailed me and said, when I, when I read the last line of that poem, I was as shocked and stunned as the shepherds were to realize what was going on here. Basically, the scene is, you know, what we all know. Upon, once upon a midnight clear, you know, the shepherds in their field were watching and they get invited to come to the manger to see the baby. And uh, that's the, this little moment, this little slice of time when they come. We've got the, the uh, kings and we've got the other people over there. But the shepherds come in and they have the insight. They have the foresight to forecast, so to speak, what they see in front of them. They, there's something truly special about this babe and they're shocked. You know, so this is big, big foreshadowing here. And of course, Mary hasn't heard Simeon's prophecy yet. That'll happen, you know, in a, in a little while when at the presentation, when they present him at the, at the temple. But she already knows there's something special about her child. And she's shocked, too, when she sees them, because this look of recognition on their face. Okay, this has an interesting backstory. So I'm sitting in Sunday school. I know you'll find this hard to believe, some of you, that I go to Sunday school, but I love to go to Sunday school. I love to go to Mass, love to go to Bible study. But years and years and years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, I was sitting in a Sunday school class, and we were reading about the Nativity, and we were discussing that, as we do, you know, ideas. And uh, someone said that the there were shepherds who lived just outside of Jerusalem for Passover, and every year... They were the ones who provided the lambs to be bought by people who wanted to do the sacrifice at, at the temple. So I was sitting there, you know, just, you know, being a good little Sunday school scholar. And what happened was, how do I get ideas for poems? <clears throat> One, I feel like artists provide the questions, not the answers. If you want answers, go to the library, go to Google, go to Wikipedia you'll find more answers than I could ever, ever come up with. But what I learned at NYU was that artists need to develop what we called in those days a mode of inquiry. That's just a fancy little doctoral level phrase that means a way of asking a question. So what artists really do is they ask questions. It's, for me, this is a what if poem. And what started in my head was, what if the shepherds who picked the lambs out of the flock because they wanted to pick the best one, the one that was unblemished, that was, uns was spotless. And that's on me using some of my references from Isaiah because Isaiah is the one who talked about the virgin would be spotless and unblemished. Mm -hmm. And so would the lamb would be spotless and unblemished. So those were their, that was their job was to find the best lamb. And so I just said, well, what if the shepherds who did the picking and the selecting happened to go, to, to go on that night? What would that be like? And so the poem basically wrote itself. And so at that point, I was a little bit like Elvis. I left the Sunday school room. You know, everything else just kind of faded. And I had paper. I always have paper with me. 
And so again, just like in the laundry room, I sat there and I wrote probably 90% of this poem as it is right here. I just block everything out. Uh, I'm sure for some activities, Josh, you know what it's like to be in the zone. And that's me. When I find an idea or something, I can just kind of, you know, block everything out. And I wrote this poem basically as it is here now, the 26 lines, 13 stanzas. Um, later, of course, I went back and I tinkered with a little bit, streamlined it, refined it. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I talk about is that you need to have tools in your toolbox. A writer has to have, whether you're a poet, a fiction writer, or a nonfiction writer. And I've used this in teaching as well, too, with my uh, creative writing classes. Uh, in my prose writing classes, I would talk about the four basic tools for every fiction or nonfiction writer is narration, action, description, and conversation. Those are the four things that make a story work. You need to balance them all. They don't have to be 25%, 25%, 25%. There should be evidence of them all. And so actually, and I've used this to help students realize when you take a prose writing class, it will help you with your poetry. When you take a poetry writing class, it should help you with your poetry. Poet has lots of tools in the box that the prose writer doesn't always have. Metaphors, similes, figures of speech. <clears throat> so in this one, really, there's it's part narration. There's part action. There's description, obviously. And the conversation is very one-sided here. This is what we call stream of consciousness or interior monologue. Okay. <laughs> so the, for me, that's how I explain, again, how the art is hiding, because it's hiding here. You know, I've used these samples, these examples. And it's just like, you know, when Picasso would choose to use a certain color, he didn't have to go back and study the color and know which color matched the best side by side with the other color. He just knew because he had immersed himself in the process. Uh, in fact, my dissertation at NYU was the creative process that produces non, uh, what I call direct experience literature. <coughs> Sometimes I get choked up talking about my own poetry. It's so embarrassing. Well, can you, can you, so you said non-directive literature. Direct experience literature. Sorry, direct experience literature. Okay. Can you Which explain that? Yeah. Direct experience literature, as I defined it, was uh, autobiographical literature. You know, a lot of our literature is written based on personal experience. But my, my goal was to see that some writers directly look for their experience and they put that in a, in a pattern and in a system that takes on a life of its own that's a little bit separate you know, from the whole experience. Most autobiographical writers <coughs> will, will start with day one, day two, day three, day 20, day 40, day 50. And they, uh, <coughs> they include everything. For me, the direct experience literature person you know, picks and chooses, you know, and maybe jumps around the chronology a little bit. Okay, yeah. One of the persons that uh, I used in my dissertation to explain that was a quote by uh, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, this is one of his more famous quotes, and he said, memory, of course, is never true. Mm. Memory, of course, is never true. And then, of course, his example was the sun also rises that was based upon five or six characters that were his best friends right after World War I, you know, and he tried to explain that he wasn't just doing uh, uh, a mirror image of his friends and their experiences. He was picking and choosing. So, so that was a uh, that was a little sidelight here to my to my dissertation. So if I can just say, when you say memory sure. isn't true, I think what he's what you're saying is it's it's not true in the sense that when we remember things, we often rearrange the order in which they happen. Yes. But there's a deeper exactly. a deeper truth that's there. Um, maybe re reframing it, re-understanding it through a different lens. Um, so it may not be accurate chronologically, but it's 
Um, but if we're remembering it, um, if we're still, if we're remembering it accurately or, or rightly in, in a deeper way, then there's still a truth to it. And, and so is that, can you can explain the connection between that with, with this poem? Is that how you're kind of understanding how you, yeah. uh, it's kind of the Virgin Mary re remembering her experiences from, from your perspective um, and kind of reframing them and, and seeing them with different lenses and interpreting them in different ways. Is that, is that right? Yes, very, very good insight there. Uh, Ezra Pound, one of Ezra Pound's early books of poems is called Personae. And that's just a fancy Latin word meaning person. And in his book, Personae, he put on a mask and he chose, and this was probably one of the influential forces in my poetry. He chose real life fixed figures from history, from culture, from literature, and he put on their mask. He would write a poem as if he were Hamlet with a new stream of consciousness. He would put on Sextus Propertius, who was a Latin poet. And he wrote a number of poems about, from his perspective, pretending to be him. And I thought, that's really pretty cool. Because I think too much of the time, um, <clears throat> readers think that, and Robert Frost probably was one who helped them to think this, is that the poem, Two Roads Diverged Into a Wood, or you know, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, that the narrator is Robert Frost. Right. And they're right, it was Robert Frost. But we don't have to be the, the, the voice in the poem. And for me, I, I kind of put on Mary's mask here mm -hmm. and see this experience as she saw it. I bring all that I know about my Christmases, about the church services. When I was 14 years old, in my screechy little voice, I sang in front of the church, We Three Kings of Orient Arbor, with two of my friends. I was pretending to be what the kings were at that point. So I think that was part of my training to learn to feel comfortable <clears throat> throwing my voice, being a ventriloquist, so to speak. I hope that, mm -hmm. hope that helps there. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the one other thing before I move on, the I think people see this as a free verse poem and they say, well, what's poetic about it? <clears throat> well, apart from what I told you about, you know, uh, the narrative stances and the description or whatever, you know, there is rhyming, there is what I call line rhyme or echo rhyme. Uh, there's a you know, amazed and gazing, there's prides and surprise. Yes. Uh, the, the, the words don't rhyme in a specific pattern. And I think because they don't rhyme at the end, it cause, cause more attention to themselves. For example, I really like a glimpse of mute surprise, some wonder in an eyebrow's rise. It's all very, very kind of, uh, not chaotic, but it's disordered in a way that you don't expect it. The problem I think with a lot of iambic pentameter poetry that has a rhyme scheme, you get caught up in the rhyme too much. And you for, you're looking forward to the next rhyme. How are they going to rhyme this as well? Okay. Uh, even in that one line, there's alliteration. Glimpse of mute surprise some. All of those S's, that alliteration of those consonants. Um, yeah. uh, uh, more and for what I would call line rhyme. Words on the same line with, with the, the, the same sounds. Um, and then the other thing that uh, works with this poem, I do this a lot, is the concept of enjambment is when you break a phrase up in an unnatural, unexpected sort of way. Mm -hmm. And if the readers are <clears throat> reading along here, uh, they can see that lots of lines end with a word that you normally don't expect to see at the end of the line, or it's actually the middle of the phrase. Lots of lines end with but or and or in, with a coordinated conjunction or with a preposition. Mm -hmm. uh, one line ends with there, 
T-H-E-Y possibly are each. Like, they are what? You expect them. Mm-hmm. And as I read it, it tries to it, it tries to have a kind of what we call informal balance. So maybe that'll help people understand why some people see this. There's lots of irony, lots of ambiguity. <clears throat> Those are other things that you see between and beyond the lines. So can you say more about how that provides um, balance, do it, do it, breaking the lines in that way? Um, <clears throat> it creates um, one of the, all right, um, back to NYU. My primary art form in my pro- program was poetry and writing. My secondary art form was photography. Uh, and my, I was in the creative arts department at NYU, not in the English department, not with those boring people learning to be stuffy English professors. I was with all the artists. And so I was required to take uh, classes with uh, dancers, choreographers, painters, sculptors, other writers as well. And so we would sit around and talk about, um, you know, how do we infuse what we do with what you do? How can we learn what you do there? So I chose photography because a lot of that dealt with a visual aspect. And when you are looking with in photography, you're looking to create a pattern. And one of the things that is boring in, in the art of photography is when everything is perfectly balanced. One of the things that makes a, a static two-dimensional image come to life better, and Picasso knew this, is that when you can make it three-dimensional, and one of the ways you make it three-dimensional is that you create what's called informal balance. When you put pictures, uh, colors, uh, designs, shapes, side-by-side in unexpected ways, it makes it more visually interesting for, for the reader, it, for the viewer. It makes the uh, expectations different. So what I'm trying to do here is to create a little bit of informal balance, getting away from this is my children and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere in 1775. You know, you get so caught up in that, the balance kind of takes away from the, the ideas. And so for me as a free verse writer, that's why the, the stances are one line, two lines, four lines, one line, two line, one line, three lines, one, but the, you, 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 you can't get a rhythm. And the lines aren't all the same length. Some of them are only two words. Some of the lines are three words. Some of them are seven words. So I hope this helps you understand that by creating this uh, imbalance, it's not to jar what the reader sees or hears. I hope that when I read it, there was a certain flow that you could sense as I was going down the page. Uh, But there's a a way to stop and start in an effective and efficient way. So maybe that helps to understand how enjambment seems to work for me anyway. Yeah, I just want to comment on this poem as as you describe that. It, it it it's telling me that you're you're really um, conscious about how the reader experiences the poem and even how the reader visualizes the poem on a literal level, um, looking at looking at the words and how that affects the reader's um, interpretation of the words, and and that's kind of matches what I see the poem being about because I see the the shepherds also have this um, double take when they see Jesus. Um, they see him on the surface, but then they also recognize something deeper about him, that he, he resembles something that they're familiar with, something that they know through their life's work, which is the, the sacrificial lamb, um, finding that unblemished lamb. And so it's an interesting um, connection between the, the form of the poetry and helping people to see the deeper meaning of the poem by how you arrange the words and, 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 the, and, the, and the shepherds. 
also seeing deeper, seeing Jesus in a deeper way than other people. They have a certain lens that other people don't have. Um, So that's, yeah, just um, very fascinating connections. Well, um, I originally had had asked you to also read a a third poem, but looking at the time, um, I have a, I, I wanted to talk with you about your, your writing and ministry in Kiev. And I'm wondering, Carl, if you'd be willing to, um, after this uh, podcast uh, episode, we're done recording, if we could record just your third poem and in describing that, if you have time for that. But, um, sure. and we yeah, could have, okay, thanks. And that would be maybe a bonus episode that's okay. not, uh, not included in this um, episode. Josh, no one has ever used the word bonus in the same sentence with one of my poems. So I am so <laughs> blessed by that. Thank you very much. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So yes, my wife and I are here in Kiev um, working as, a, as missionary educators. Um, and that's a big umbrella. That's a big scope of a thing to do. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my role is that I'm a missionary educator 50% of the time. And I'm a writer 50% of the time. So for me, my mornings until about noon or so are infused with writing. That's how I focus, focus my life. And the rest of the day, I, I, the best way to, uh, to illustrate that is in another interview with actually a, a YouTube channel a producer here in Kiev. I gave an interview and I used the phrase, I like to be open to opportunity. And so uh, Whatever I end up doing in the day, it surprises me. It's almost like my, my writing. Um, uh, ideally, we came here to work with a, a, a Nazarene church here in Kiev, but we've been in lockdown. We've been here, my wife and I, this is our second year here. Most of the time that we've been here, we've been under the pandemic like everybody else around the world. So what we had intended on doing, we've had to kind of switch around and you know, be liquid and not you know, be locked into what we do. Uh, we do Zoom Bible studies. Uh, last fall, when the pandemic was huge here in Kiev, it's kind of on its third wave here, but last fall was huge. Uh, what we actually spent a lot of time doing was going to grocery stores, buying food, bringing it home, cooking meals, taking meals. I, I joke about that in the United States, we have a program called Meals on Wheels. Here in Kiev, it's Meals on Feet because we use uh, public transportation, uh, when we could in lockdown, sometimes you can't use public transportation. So uh, that was, you know, part of the, uh, you know, answering the call that Jesus says, you know, this do a remembrance of me. You feed people, you, you visit them, you take things to them. I mean, we would buy, people would give, would send us a grocery list. These are members of our church and then members in our community who learned about us. You know, we, they would send us a grocery list, you know, on our cell phone, we would go to a grocery store and pick up the items. Great for learning the language, trust me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and sometimes what we would do, we would come home and we would cook a meal uh, for a family that would serve for two or three days. Uh, and and I, as often as not, because of the pandemic, and these were people who had COVID, we would take the food to their apartment, put it at the door, knock on the door. We wouldn't run away, but let them know that it was there or we'd give them a call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're, we're planning on doing a, a Zoom Bible study on the film series, the, the Chosen. Maybe some of the listeners will know of that. The second season just started, uh, I think, a week or two ago. On, on Easter, I think, the second season started. So uh, we've been encouraged to use some of our Zoom opportunities to uh, create a, 
uh, we're going to watch a, 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 an episode and then talk about it. And if the lockdown ever, you know, relaxes a little bit here, we'll have them meeting in our home again. Off and on, we've had Bible studies and film studies here. Um, the idea is to be open to opportunity. Uh, the film producer who has this YouTube channel overheard Rhonda and I talking in the grocery store. And he came over and talked to us. He's a retired uh, TV producer and executive for one of the major <laughs> television stations here in Key. And in retirement, he has set up a YouTube channel called Useful Tips. That's what it's translated into English. And what he does is that he likes to find interesting people, like and actually a lot of church churches, Catholic, Orthodox, and our church. He's done several on our church now. And uh, he just came up to us and started talking to us. And that has blossomed into this amazing friendship that uh, we're able to talk about our church. We've had him come and uh, put on his YouTube channel use, uh, some of our church services. And then, of course, an interview with, with Ron and me. So I think it's an opportunity for us to uh, put our faith into action in a slightly different way for me, and yet still use my art. He's fascinated by my poetry. Uh, what we're planning on doing is I'm going to go into one of the schools here, and he wants to film me teaching wow. my poetry. Wow. So you just don't know. I that's mean, great. You just wake up, you do what you can, and then as an opportunity informs you, that's what, what you try to do. Uh, and the other thing that's really interesting is that when we, whenever we talk to people and they want to talk and practice their English or they want to know more about us, and they invariably will ask us, where are you from? We will say, we're from San Diego. And their look is, amaze, is one of amazement, kind of like the shepherds. And they say, you're from California? And we say, yes, we're here living in Key. And they invariably want to know, why are you here in California? Yeah, that's a common question I get as well from some being yeah. someone from California. Yeah. yeah. So that opens the door. And, I, and you say, well, I'm here as a missionary educator working for global missions for the Church of the Nazarene. And, and, then, and then the door is wide open for us to talk about what we do and why, why we're here. And we try not to be heavy handed about it, but... It's amazing how open people are to hearing how committed we are to our faith and our belief structure that we would come to Kiev, which is a very fascinating place, you know, actually. Uh, and uh, you just, as we all know, you know, you, you say how, where, when, why, how can I serve, serve best? Yeah. And it sounds like that approach that you have in your writing of having your antennae, as you describe it, um, being open to... Yes to new inspiration. You, you also carry that on in your, in your daily life and in your missionary work. And, and I hope that, um, that you continue to find rich connections as you do in your writing with you, the people that you meet in Kiev. Uh, Kiev. And, um, and I just wish you the, the best in, as you share your writing, hopefully you have more opportunities to do that with people there and um, in your work and ministry there. How yeah, can people- I'm, I'm always surprised. Yes. I'm sorry. Go yes. ahead. Go ahead. It, I am. I am blessed. I just, you know, it's the hands up thing again. Mm, yes. Pause up. Yes. How can people find your book? Thanks to technology. You're helping me by doing this, but more specifically, the book can be ordered from the publisher finishing line press. If you go to finishing uh, you'll, you'll find it out there. There's a whole uh, page for this particular book, but it's also available uh, on Amazon, Goodreads, 
Ingram, and as I like to say, wherever fine books are bought and sold. But I'm really blessed by the Finishing Line people. This is the fourth book of mine that they have published. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the publisher, Leah Maines, and my editor, Kristen Kincaid, they've, they've, they've been just amazing in, in making this happen. So uh, uh, that's probably the easiest way is to do a Finishing Line or go to Amazon.com. It's available in paperback or uh, hardback for that matter. And uh, whenever I'm in town, I'll be happy to sign, sign a copy of the book. Actually, as I've been known to say, I'll sign anybody's book, mine or someone else's. I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, uh, thank you, Carl, for taking the time to talk with me. It's been really uh, insightful and inspiring and uh, just learned a lot um, about your writing and um, the connections you make and, and the, uh, and what you've your, what you have yourself have learned through the writing process. Oh, Josh, so, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy, and uh, I am blessed, and this has been a big blessing to me today, and will continue to be so. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate. It. Great. I so appreciate. It. Thank you, and to our listeners, uh, you can find uh, the links to the um, the various websites that we mentioned in this interview today, as well as another poem that Carl has written on our website at foreshadowmagazine.com. And uh, we post new work there every week. And if you liked today's conversation or any of our other content, please do share this and the others with people that you think would enjoy them. So again, thank you, Carl, and thank you everyone for listening. That's the forecast for today. <laughs>